93% of your life is spent indoors, but so many of our favorite moments are outdoors. The fresh air, the feeling of peace. Since warmer weather is almost here, let's make the most of it with Outer, the new outdoor furniture company with purposely designed furniture to get you outdoors more. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials. I love the new outdoor dining table and chairs I just bought. It looks great in my backyard, and it's the perfect setup for hosting a dinner party. Go to liveouter.com slash the founder hour to see all the incredible products they have to offer. For a limited time, get 10% off. That's liveouter.com slash the founder hour. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder, if you enjoy what you hear, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you get notified when new episodes drop. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, at the founder hour. Let's get into it. John Neiman, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, heard you're an LA guy. Well, we talked about it offline, but I know your parents immigrated here from Iran. Uh, give us a little bit of background on them and you know your early life. Sure. So, you know, as you mentioned, I think my parents' story, immigrant story, was a huge part of my upbringing. My parents immigrated here in 1979. You know, they were born in Iran. Fleet uh, came here, uh, persecution, they were Jewish, and so came here in 1979 with uh, much of our community, you know, had to flee. Is that the Ayatollah Khomeini revolution? Yeah, and so when the Shah was deposed and Khomeini came in, almost overnight, they had to leave. My my parents actually uh, grew up in Iran too, so I'm Armenian, but Persian Armenian. Oh, really? So I'm very familiar. I don't speak, but uh, (laughs) I know the story, you know, Armenians, Christians in Simil- time, we, we similar. have a very similar, you know, yeah. we have a very similar story. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, that was always, that's always been part of, you know, what kind of my upbringing. Right. And, you know, I think the, what I learned from them is they had to pick up everything overnight and leave and leave a life that they had and start all over. Mm-hmm. And I think this idea that nothing in life is permanent and this idea of starting something from scratch again and starting over was something I watched my my parents do, the whole community, as you guys did as well. And so from a very early age, I think there was no no option other than being an entrepreneur. Yeah. I think I always knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, it was almost a, a dream of mine since I was a kid. I remember as a kid going to work with my dad and I, you know, he'd wear a suit. So I tried to, you know, I asked to put on a suit and walk through his, you know, my dad was in the textile business. And so So he's also an entrepreneur. Yeah. Also an entrepreneur. And so I'd go to, you know, I'd go to the warehouse and I'd walk around with him. And from a very early age, I think taught about this idea, you know, what business is and how to start something for nothing from nothing. And always kind of knew I wanted, that's what I wanted to do. I never thought that I would be in the restaurant business. I always loved food, but never in my life thought, you know, had a dream or a vision when, growing up to be in restaurants. Yeah. It was, but I definitely knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. What, what was food like for your family or for your upbringing? Like, was it, did you guys like, you know, bond over that or, or obviously being, you know, Middle Eastern or Iranian or Armenian or just like th- those cultures, food is such a big part of it. And there are so many like dishes that, you know, our grandparents and great grandparents like made that kind of stays in the family and so yeah like what was it like for you yeah it was you know food was a huge part of it sunday barbecue and you know friday night shabbat dinners those are both the power of food to bring people together 
is something that I learned at a very early age, you know, in the power of community. And so, you know, I just loved food, loved to explore new food, and really learned early on the that great food all came down to the ingredients. And I think that's what something that I that I learned very early and grew to love. But for me, it was uh, again, it was it wasn't it was never a goal to to start restaurants. It was a goal to start a business that would have a positive impact in the world. That's something that I knew that, you know, I really do believe in the power of capitalism. And I do believe in, you know, the, the amazing, you know, Amer- while some people are critical of America, I think it's the greatest place in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that what the opportunity here, that anyone can come here and start something from nothing mm-hmm. is just incredible. And so that meritocracy, the power of capitalism and, you know, the, the, just these ideals that this country was founded on is something that has always really resonated with me from a very early, early stage. Yeah. And, you know, th- for me, the core value that, you know, was always something that was always part of me that I brought to Sweetgreen was this idea of win-win-win. And for us, this uh, win-win-win is this idea of creating solutions where the customer, the community, and the company win. And that brings me back to my my view on business as a as a as a source to do great in the world. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you know. I think a lot of people try to create a business and then make an impact somewhere else in the world on the side. Yeah. For me, it's always been how can you use business as a vehicle for positive impact, the social entrepreneurship aspect of things. Correct. I'm curious because I assume as a kid you weren't necessarily thinking of all this stuff and no kid really does think of this stuff. But what did you enjoy doing as a kid? Were you into sports? Were you, I mean, I don't know, into theater? I, I, I don't know. What were you into? What was I was into, you know, I was into sports. I was, uh, I definitely, I played video games. I was into sports. I was into music a lot. Music has been a huge passion. If there's anything I thought maybe I would do, was playing music or more just I loved music. I always try played. I tried playing music. I was yeah. never great at it, yeah. but I was so interested in you know both following music, but also the music, like the business of mm-hmm. uh, of the music industry. That's probably right. what I thought I would right. I would go into, like working at a label or something. like Yeah, that, that was like you know management. like I was an intern at a label at one point. But which one? I was at Warner Music Group. I was at Atlantic. Okay. Uh, and but for me it was it was always that 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 entrepreneurial hustle. So yeah. a lot of businesses growing up. So whether it was you know lemonade stands early or when I got a little older, I would coach and tutor kids. You know when I was in high school, I started this thing called the Young Entrepreneurs Club, and the club was really just three people when we started. <laughs> and we started or we were three kids that. Loved the idea of entrepreneurship. We were in 10th grade. And at first, we decided to bring guest speakers. We're like, all right, we're going to bring some guest speakers. We're going to talk about entrepreneurship. After a few weeks, we're like, we should do something more than just talk about it. Let's. What if we actually started something? So we started this idea, and we realized that many— I went to, I went to Beverly Hills High School mm-hmm. here. And one, one of the things that our school did not have, many schools had, were these agenda books, these like planners. Um, I don't know if these even exist in the day of social in the in the day of iPhones, right. but it was a very simple thing of just like your planner that you you know you wrote down all your notes and these things in. So we had this idea: what if we could go create this planner? We would design the planner, we would sell the planner, but our idea was to sell sell it very cheaply, pretty much at cost, to get maximum distribution across the school. The school had over two thousand kids, and so what we did is we got we essentially we got 
almost the whole entire school to buy the planners. So we had the built-in distribution. And that way we could go to advertisers and sell advertising mm. on the planners. So it's right. kind of like a loss leader, if you will. Yeah, so, like a loss yeah. leader. Like get, it was a, yeah, it was a break cost. even on break, sell them at yeah. cost and then sell advertising. And in 10th grade, I mean, we would sell it for in a, in a planner like $30,000 in advertising Not yeah, bad. on the planner. And we did this for, for, for a few years. Was the goal at the time to like make money or was it just a fun project for you guys? I think, you know, I always look at, you know, business has to make money. And so I always looked at it as something, you know, we've had this philosophy of passion and purpose, something you love to do that you're really driven by. And so, yeah, the goal was to make money, but also provide a, you know, a useful service that people loved in the world. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you say that because, you know, and we, Pat and I have been doing this for six and a half years now, and nobody really says the opposite of that statement, which is businesses not to necessarily make money but a lot of the people that we've interviewed i mean not a lot and not most but a good amount of the folks that we've interviewed have gone on to start companies that aren't necessarily making money especially not from day one maybe not even in year five maybe it takes five ten fifteen years to be profitable i'm sure you've heard of these companies too but when you and i we're jumping around a lot here but when you had the idea and you and your partners had the idea of starting sweet green was that the goal from day one was, you know what, we're going to start something that we believe in, but it's got to make money. It can't just be losing money for God knows how long. And then somehow, some way we'll figure out how to make money. Yeah, I think you have to have a plan in terms of what the long-term vision is, right. you know, and, and businesses go through different cycles. So when we started, we had no capital. Yep. We started the business and we, you know, we raised the absolute minimum we could raise to open that first restaurant. Mm-hmm. We raised about $300,000 to open our first restaurant. It was 500 square feet. Mm-hmm. We were seniors and seniors in college. It, was, it wasn't even enough money to open that restaurant. We ended right. up owing a lot of money to our contractor and maxing out credit cards and the whole thing. Um, and we had to show that the unit economics worked for that first restaurant. And then we had to do the same for the second restaurant and the third restaurant. And we, and we ran it that way really for about 20 restaurants. It was at that point once we got to 20 restaurants where we were able to fundraise for a bigger vision, we had then proven that the unit economics work. Each individual restaurant makes money, but we wanted to build something much, much bigger. And once every generation in our, in, in our industry, in the restaurant industry, a brand breaks through. Mm-hmm. And this is a brand that, you know, we're, we're a company that owns all of our restaurants. We're not a franchise group. So we build, operate, and run every single thing we do. Mm-hmm. Most people probably don't realize that most restaurants, chain restaurants you see in the United States, are, are franchise restaurants. Right. They're not actually owned. There are really two large, really large companies, um, Chipotle and Starbucks, that own their restaurants for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so our vision was always to be one of those companies that can kind of break through and be a once-in-a-generation global right. iconic brand. So right. at that point, we actually did raise, you know, we raised a, a significant uh, amount of funds over the next few years, and capital was pretty freely available in this period. And we were able to build the infrastructure to support our much bigger vision. Right. So we did go for a while to, in, in, in mm-hmm. a world of losing money. Right. And we've just come out of it um, recently. Yeah, COVID didn't really help your cause. And COVID didn't help it. Yeah. But we had it, you know, for us, it was building the infrastructure, mm-hmm. whether that be the supply chain, the brand, the operating team, to build something much, much bigger, Yeah. Um, including things like automation. So we've, you know, very intentionally right. made a lot of investments. We've been fortunate to have the capital in order to do it. But it's all been with this view towards the, towards the long term, mm-hmm. really building something. You know, the, the aim was never to get to 200 stores. Right. The aim was always to build something 
really, really big. Right. And we'll come back to that piece, but I want to kind of take it back to John in high school and being this kid who's interested in entrepreneurship and, you know, running this entrepreneur club. You know, like every kid in high school, there comes a point where you have to decide like, okay, do I go to college first of all? Second, what am I studying in college? You know, and, and for someone who's interested in entrepreneurship, sometimes or most times, it's probably like business, um, right? And, you know, studying business doesn't always equate or like set you up well for entrepreneurship. It probably sets you up well to go on Wall Street or consulting yeah. or something. But I'm just curious for you, what was your mindset at the time? And I know you went to Georgetown. Um, what did you think like your life would look like and what were you studying and all that kind of stuff? So I decided, so I w w finished high school and I went to Georgetown partially because they had a business school and I really did want to study business. I looked at a lot of different schools, um, but it was probably the best school I got into. I was keen on leaving Los Angeles I actually visited Georgetown while they were on spring break. So I'm just like, oh, it's a pretty. That's where I'm going to go. You know, like it's a pretty school. I didn't really meet anyone, but I'm like, it's beautiful. It was a beautiful day. And I, and I kind of made that decision. Thank God you didn't go to like Missouri yeah. during spring break or something. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, for me at Georgetown, you know, I, I actually learned a lot from my business classes. I think they did give me s certain fundamentals around things like finance and accounting and certain things. But to your point, the real thing about building a business is really about leadership. Mm -hmm. And as many management classes you take, as many cases that you can read, I don't think you can really do it until you try it yourself. Yeah. Just and, gotta throw and, yourself into and, it. And throw yourself into it. I probably, when I went to college, and even when I graduated college, I probably thought that I was gonna go work for a while and continue to learn and train. And that was always my idea. You know, starting Sweetgreen was almost accidental. You know, we just had this idea that was burning inside of us that were like, how, how come this does not exist? You know, I had just gotten back from, I had just gotten back from studying in, in Australia for study abroad for like six months. And I saw this culture where healthy food was cool. Mm -hmm. And in, in the U S especially at the time, and you know, this is going back 2006, the cool restaurants were not the healthy restaurants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we came back and with my two co-founders, we kind of shared this vision and, and this kind of yearning problem that we had in our own life. of Why can't there be a place to eat that is delicious and healthy and convenient and affordable? Like, and why, why is our best answer in the U.S. for fast food like McDonald's? Yeah. Like, well, how is that, how is, is that going to yeah. be the brand of this next generation? And so, we, you know, at first it was, let's just, Open one because we were kind of had that entrepreneurial itch or like we thought it'd be super easy to be honest or like how hard could it be to open a restaurant tiny yeah. little place we're gonna sell salads how you know we're gonna go buy the kitchen equipment we're gonna go to the farmer's market we're gonna buy the food you do that at home i mean it's like, yeah we're like how hard can this be no idea all of everything that goes around it right. and i always like to say that the the naivete the not knowing what we didn't know was such a beautiful advantage right because I think as you learn more and more and you get, you know, you get older and you learn more, a lot of fear sets in mm -hmm. and your risk tolerance changes. And one thing that, you know, I believe is you can't really fall from the floor. So right. when you're 22 years old, you're graduating college, the expectation was so low. We already mm -hmm. weren't making any money. Yep. You know, we didn't have families. All these things weren't there. So it, it allowed us to take this really big risk just because we, we were at this you know, we, we, we were where we were and we were lucky to see this opportunity, but 
we didn't know what we didn't know. And I think that was a huge advantage in taking those risks. John, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because we hear, you know, the naivete thing all the time. It's on all pod, all entrepreneurs, like, you know, and it's, and it's true. But I think for folks that are listening, I think they hear that and they say, okay, but, you know, there's all these what ifs and why nots and, you know, we shouldn't do that or that's not how it's done or hasn't been done before. Can you give some concrete examples of something that you guys did that had you known, knowing now what you know, you would have done differently or maybe not even done at all? Good question. So, first of all, I don't think we realize how hard it is to build a restaurant. Like physically, physically, the components like like how hard the it grease is. Grease trap and yeah, the, yeah like yeah. We, you know, when we yeah. got we didn't even think about sanitation lines, right. grease traps, and we we rented this concrete box. Right. It had no utilities, no water line, no sanitation line, and we didn't know. Today, we would have never ever taken that location. It's too small. It didn't have any of the things. And it was probably not in a great location. You know, objectively, it was not in a great location. It was a cool location because it had this iconic look mm-hmm. to it. And it was kind of close to campus, right. but also on M Street. But we just, uh, I think if we had known any of those things, we wouldn't do it. It did force us to get really, really creative. And I'll give you a few examples. Like the space was so small where we didn't have enough storage in the unit. Mm-hmm. And to give you an idea, our restaurants today are about 2,500 feet. This mm-hmm. restaurant was 500 so it's like, really, a closet. it's like a closet and it had a, it has an ADA bathroom. So if you think like it's an ADA bathroom, like tiny little kitchen, a line, no seating inside. But we had no storage. And so our idea is you, you, you have to start to like solve problems. So there was a park, we were, we were attached to like a parking garage. So what we did is we, we rented two parking spots from the parking lot company. And we allowed, we, we got them to let us build out two of the spots and like drywall it and put all our refrigeration and dry goods there. Mm. So that restaurant, the way it ran is we had a cart where you'd have to take it from the parking lot, down the ramp, two levels, and then down a cobblestone alley and then bring the product in the restaurant and then prep the product. Mm -hmm. We would never do that today. Yeah. But – it was that it was that constraint of the size that like you forced had us to, to get. No we, had, we had no choice, but right. it was also, I think, from a very early on that I've always believed that constraint drives creativity, mm. um, and it forces you to think about, you know, cool creative ways to build the brand and tell the story, while keeping the menu really simple. I think mm-hmm. if our if our first space was bigger, we would have probably done much more than salad. Mm. We would have probably. Yeah. Like we should show some sandwiches yeah, here. Yeah, sandwiches. This, it was so small that we had to keep it super simple. Right. And I think that was one of the, you know, one of the things that forced, you know, the simplicity was one of the factors to success because we became really great at one thing. Yeah. And I think great businesses kind of like own their niche, scale that, and then expand from their core. And so all to say, I think that constraint was very, very valuable for us. You should build like a 500 square foot box in your office and force like all the new employees <laughs> to come up with like a cool concept and see what, what happens. It would be actually really interesting. You know, and some of the mistakes we've made is as we've gotten bigger, you take bigger space and, and, right. and it's, it's not always better. Right, right. So going back to, you know, you're in college and before you even think of the idea for Sweet Green, you talk about wanting healthier food. Um, growing up in a Middle Eastern family, like, you know, there's a lot of food and it's not always the healthiest, right? I mean, hey, there are training diets pretty good. No, there are. Yeah. But it's like, you know, <laughs> some foods are, could be oily or hummus, what have you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious, like, when did your like health food awakening, uh, healthy food awakening come and Like, why did you, why were you just wanting healthier food? So for me, it was, 
you know, I think the word health is is a it's a big word, mm-hmm. right? What does health mean? Health means different things to different people. For me, healthy has always been about just real ingredients, unprocessed food. So I do think like if you if you're making Persian food, Armenian food at home with good real ingredients, even if it happens to have you know lots of olive oil or it's meat or these things, I, I can process food. Yeah. I consider that healthy. Yeah, you know, for me that's nutritious and it's real. The other thing that I think I where what got me to fall in love with it, this idea of nutritious and like well sourced healthy food was, I realized that the foods that I loved the best food. The, the taste came from the quality of the ingredients. Yeah. And I think some people sometimes don't get sweet green. What they don't, they misunderstand about sweet green is sweet green as a health food restaurant. And the things that we do are to make it healthy. I do think it is healthy. But the reason we're so obsessed about the sourcing of the food is that that's what you can taste. You know, I, you know, I love the in and out slogan, quality you can taste. Right. And I think that's kind of the idea of it is, we do these things not only because they're good for you, but because that's what makes the food taste really good. It's mm-hmm. that pop of flavor and freshness right. from how we source the food. We were, you know, we were just talking about Nancy right. Silverton. Yeah. Right. She shares this philosophy of like where she gets the food from. It shows up in a totally yeah, different Alice way. Alice Waters, I mean, who's yeah, and these came the, up with that point. Yes, Alice concept. Waters and Nancy. These are the people that we looked up to. And that those are the, we're like, that's, we just want to do a fast food version of that. Right. We want to do what the chefs are doing, buy the food from where they're buying it, and figure out a format that can be accept, more accessible mm-hmm. and kind of democratize it for more people. Yeah. So, so, John, Pat and I talk about this like offline ad nauseum with one another as friends. We've talked about it on the podcast with different guests. And every time we go to Europe, like anywhere in, anywhere in Europe, or you know, I know when you went to Armenia last couple of years ago, you know, the food there, the ingredients there, let's not say food, but the ingredients there, they're all already kind of good. Yeah, right? like you're not like I gotta pick between the organic and the non-organic. It's just everything's organic, you know. I, I you know I got went to San Sebastian a couple of years ago. I was having tomatoes and I've never tasted tomatoes like that in my life. Like I might be a vegan in San Sebastian, <laughs> you know, just because of those tomatoes. I love San Sebastian. Yeah, Amazing one of the place. best places in the world for food specifically. Uh, but how you know how knowing that fact of you know the the world and the ingredients out there versus the U.S. You know. Was it a challenge to find and source good stuff early on? Not only for sweet green, but even for yourself, like before, whether you were in high school, college, at home, how, how were you guys able to find and source the right good ingredients? Yeah, what's interesting is when we first started, it was actually not that hard to find because our scale was so small. Right. You know, and it was the. this food exists out there. The problem is, is the distribution network of providing this food at at scale is the challenging part. So when we started, it's very easy to make relationships with farmers. We made it through the farm. We literally go to the farmer's market, make relationships, have, you know, yeah. make deals with the farmers directly, have a distributor move the product. The challenges around sourcing actually happened as we began to scale and got bigger and had much greater needs, as well as started to grow to multiple regions. And then it was, how do we do this a lot of places? So what I sometimes say is, like if you wanted to replicate sweet green in one store, you, you could, could do it. You can do it. Now do it in 225 stores or 1,000 stores. That's where the challenge really, mm-hmm. really arises. Mm-hmm. So you're, again, going back to college. You're, you're, you're in college. How does the idea come about? And then I know you and um, two others partnered up, um, Nick and Nate. Yes. Um, 
you know, what was going on at the time between you guys? Um, and why did you think like this was the thing that you wanted to do, you know, at the time? So Nick, Nick and Nate were, were two of my good friends in college. The, I met Nick the first day I walked into Georgetown. I was, you know, so lucky. I walk into my dorm and next door, as I'm moving in, right next door, Nick is moving in into his dorm. And Nick was from uh, New York and his family was in the restaurant business. And so with my love of food and his love of food, we immediately bonded. And one of the things we bonded over was how bad the food was at the cafeteria and our venture out into, you know, the community and, and out into the city to explore different food. So we were kind of like... Yeah. Food buddies that would go explore food and kind of kept that, you know, relationship going. For, and was he college. also interested in entrepreneurship like you? And also, you know, parents were also immigrants, also entrepreneurs and shared a love of entrepreneurship. Um, and, I, and I'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. Nate, I, I met um, first day of class. So a couple of days later, first day of class, I walk into Accounting 101 and I see, you know, go to Georgetown. It's, you know, in Washington, D.C., Kids from LA kind of stood out pretty obviously. So like Nate's sitting like next to Nate's sitting like right behind me and he's wearing like an LA Dodgers cap and Converse. And you're like, okay, like, I know kid, all about you, yeah, you know, it's like, well, you kind of dress like a skater kid and, yeah. you know, same as me. And they're like, okay, like we're going to be friends. Immediately became friends. And he had a similar story. His parents also immigrate, immigrated here. His mom from Mexico, his dad from Taiwan, also immigrants. So we shared that, that, draw to entrepreneurship and starting a business we all took this class while we were while we were at georgetown an entrepreneurship class um a wonderful professor that we're still uh, close with his name was will finnerty mm. and we all actually took it at different times but it was a very influential class for all of us and nick was actually the ta by the time i took the class mm. and so i think that that we almost became this like common language between us from taking this class and in yeah. the class you have to do a Competit- like a business case competition. We had, we had one called E-Challenge where yeah. you had to go out and actually like create a business and make money. Correct. Yeah. What was interesting about our, that our time there is we, by the time I was the last person to take the class, I was taking it senior year, uh, first semester, and that was the point where we were beginning to write the business plan for Sweetgreen. And I wanted to use it for the class because I was actually going to do it. What was interesting was the class didn't allow you to use restaurants because restaurants were not, quote, scalable businesses. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but it was really interesting. While while the entrepreneurship teacher Will was super supportive of us, it was amazing to see how much, as I would ask different professors and people like mentors, how many people told me it was like the worst idea ever. Like it was like so many people are like, you're you're crazy. They take the stats. Ninety percent of restaurants close. Why don't you go lose money? I remember someone saying, "Go lose money on someone else's dime." Yeah. All of these, you know, kind of things. positive messages. Yeah, positive messages. <laughs> but for me, that those kinds of things always kind of drive me. I don't know something about like I like this like underdog it, mentality. It never discouraged like you. Prove. No, I kind of it actually kind of drives me even mm-hmm. today when when I get you know Nate when I feel naysayers on what we're trying to do it actually gives me a little bit more of that fire to prove people wrong but you know it's you know when you hear people say that and you try to understand why they're saying it especially if they're a professor of entrepreneurship they must know a lot right or like maybe maybe they do maybe they don't um but you know you hear people that have done things and they say you know this is not a scalable business and you're this kid in college never started a business before you know most people will probably be like Okay, maybe he's right. Maybe they're right. You know, it's like, and and when you really think about it, I mean, in retrospect, like like you said, that naivete helps. 
But, you know, there are like statistics that show that food businesses are not always great businesses, right? Like, and you guys have innovated along the way, obviously, and that's what have, has kept, I'm sure you, the sweet green sustainable. But, you know, at the time, like, were you just, did you have this like feeling inside where it's like all these people don't know what they're saying and I know that I'm going to make this work one way or another? You know, all the naysayers really forced us to do our homework. You know, and so we got, so, you know, we got to get senior year, we, we start chatting and we were, we were, we, the three of us had talked about business ideas a lot. And then it was senior year. We'd all got back. We we're trying to figure out what we're going to do with our lives after college. And we started talking about this idea of like, what if there was a kind of healthy place to eat? As I said, I had just gotten back from Australia. I'd kind of seen this. Nick was from the food business. Nate was very interested in like creating a brand and so it all like kind of came together by chance where we started talking about this idea. And at first it was, we decided we were going to do it in earnest, but I think originally it was, let's just open one restaurant. We started at the beginning of senior year. It was like fall of senior year. We thought it would be open by like, you know, by February, March, we'd be open. Our idea is kind of crazy. We were like, we're going to hire a manager. We're all going to go on with our lives. We're going to have this one restaurant. It was going to be like a fun experience. As soon as we started doing it, one, realizing it was much harder than we expected. It was going to cost, it was going to take more time, cost more than what we expected. But also as we started peeling back, like the, the understanding of the industry and the opportunity, we realized this could be so much bigger than one store. This wasn't a problem just in our own lives. Mm-hmm. But I think what gave us confidence was we were the customer originally. In a lot of ways, we were designing for for ourselves and for our friends. So it was very authentic. Like what we put out was like, this is what we want. We want to eat this every day. We know another few hundred people that want to eat this every day. And, you know, we just did the math. I remember we did the math on the space. We're like, okay, here's the rent. Here's how many people we have to serve a day. And I remember going to, we would go and we would do counts. We'd go to every restaurant in the area I remember going to like Subway and Dean yeah. and DeLuca and Chipotle, all these places and standing outside and literally counting how many customers they got. And we got to the place where we're like, hey, we only need to serve, call it like a hundred and something customers a day and we'll be good. And it kind of, it, it was that, you know, that deep homework, you know, yeah. and getting clear on what, what it was, what the break even was and this idea of like starting really small to prove something that gave us the conviction to go to go and do it. And I do give a lot of credit to all of our parents. You know, they sent us to Georgetown. It's like, you know, hoping we were going to go get some big job and go do go on to do something. And we go tell all of them that, like, actually, we're not turning down, the, you know, <laughs> we're turning out a career in investment banking or consulting yeah. <laughs> or whatever else. And we're going to go run this, like, tiny little salad shack. Yep. And did I, you feel like if, okay, did you have this like plan B in mind at all of like, if it doesn't work out, I can go get a job or did, were you just so convict? Like, did you have so much conviction in this concept that you're like, this is going to work out for sure? I did think it was going to work out, but there was always, you know, you're 22 years old. There's always a plan B, you know, even if you're six years old, there's a plan B, you know, right. I think it's easier plan B when you're 22. And like yep. I said, you can't fall from the floor, mm-hmm. you know, you're that, you're at that level. And Hey, if it fails, you're back to exactly where you started. But yeah, I was okay. I'd go to maybe I'd go to business school. Maybe I'd go be a consultant. Maybe I'd go do venture capital. Maybe I'd go in the music business. Like yeah. I was never worried, you know. And I think this may be something I learned from my parents of like maybe immigrating here and starting over. And what they really valued was education yeah. and resiliency 
and this idea of being able to pull yourself up from your bootstraps. And so, so even, even if it all failed, like you pick back up and you start, you start over even today. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash founder hour. Once again, go to shopify.com slash founder hour to take your retail business to the next level today. How did you guys fund the first store? So the first store we funded, uh, we raised about $300,000 from friends and family, um, some professors, some classmates. We had 50 people invest in our first Round. And we're so, giving them equity. Yeah. So equity is so imagine fifty people to raise three hundred thousand dollars. So think <laughs> think about thousand dollars. Yeah. It was like the average check was like you know like the biggest check was twenty thousand. You need someone full time just managing that cap table. Oh my god! <laughs> and this is you know before Cardo, we we're on right. just doing it on doing it on spreadsheets. We had to talk to hundreds and hundreds of people. That's about. not an ad for Carta, by the way. But if you're interested in sponsoring, <laughs> <laughs> but you know it was a. I think I always say like raising money is kind of this like going through the gauntlet. You have to really believe it so much in yourself and perfect your thinking mm -hmm. and your plan to prove to other people um we at the time we had no idea what we were doing in terms of raising money and there was not much of a market for raising money for a restaurant company so what we did is we actually raised money for the restaurant just the restaurant it wasn't for the business the business and then <laughs> restaurant two we did the same so we went to another 50 investors and raised you know, a little bit more money. It was like 600000 for the second restaurant. And then the third restaurant, we did the same. After three restaurants, we had three separate companies with different investors across three of them. And the deal was each restaurant had to distribute all of its cash flow quarterly. It's like real estate deals. It was like a real estate yeah. deal. Like we didn't know any better. We just kind of like, you know, got a, an attorney that was like a rest. This is kind of how when you open like a single restaurant, right. this is kind of how you structure it. You invest in the restaurant and you get the cash flows from the restaurant. We didn't know any better, and that's how we did it. What was good is we we owned like the IP, mm -hmm. and so after three restaurants, it was a very painful and challenging legal thing, like legal challenge uh, and and fin financial structuring. But we went to all of the three, all of the investors across all three restaurants, and we said, "Hey, we'll trade you your ownership of you have five percent in Sweet Green Georgetown, and I'm going to give you." One percent or whatever in common stock like, in like the holding company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we kind of like restructured the company, and what that allowed us to do is reinvest the profits, and also start to think about building a brand, not just individual restaurants. Was Sweet Queen one an immediate success? It was a relative. You know, the bar was low. It was so small that the bar was pretty low, and I'd say yeah, for the most part, it was a. It was. We opened in August 1st. It was relatively slow the month of August, but as soon as the students no came students, back, yeah. as soon as the students came back, it did well. It wasn't until the winter that it got really challenging. We didn't have any working capital. We almost kind of went out of business that winter. So that was a really, really yeah. hard moment for us. But once it got a little warmer, 
business did better. And the business did a million dollars in its first year, almost like exactly a million dollars, which which was shows that people wanted it. Yeah. And our, our plan for the first restaurant, we were hoping to do like 600,000 the first year. And so it was, it was pretty good. Yeah. Keeps you going. After yeah. Um, I know you raised a lot of money from Steve case. Um, we, we've had on the show too. And um, you know, it's interesting to me because it almost seems like him included, but I'm sure you guys too, were looking at sweet green as more than just a food business, like a restaurant. You were looking at it as like a brand, a tech company even, and like, I'm curious how far ahead you saw at that point. Like, what was your grand vision early on after you realized, okay, we need to expand from one restaurant and make it, you know, to more locations. Like, yeah. Like what, what was your, did you, do you remember like what the, yeah, 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 of course. So, you know, a lot of people always ask is like sweet green, a food company, a brand, a tech company. We're a restaurant company and a brand. Um, we use technology like any great business should to enable and accelerate. And I think we were very lucky in the time in which we were created. We were, you know, born in 2007, right after we started the iPhone came out. So the world changed Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden everybody had this computer in their pocket, this remote control in their pocket that could do a lot. And I think we were very lucky in the fact that we were, we we saw that change. We were digital natives and kind of saw the power of mobile and technology to transform consumer experiences. It was almost obvious to us when our biggest problem after a few stores was we had these long lines and we could only service as fast as one line could go. I'm like, well, why can't on you could buy econ- like clothes on you could buy a lot of stuff at that point. A lot of things online are on your phone. Mm-hmm. Why can't you order? food on your phone and make the line go faster. And, and this so is was, pre like DoorDash, Postmates. Yeah, this is like 2009, 2010. Yeah. It was like, why not just be able to use the phone to cut the line? Mm-hmm. That was like the simple yeah, It's idea. like early days of the iPhone. Yeah. yeah, early days of iPhone. So we were like one of the first people to like have, you know, build an app and build a second line. So it was almost, you had two restaurants in one restaurant. Mm-hmm. One rest, one one kind of kit line for your app orders, one line for in-store. And so we've always seen technology as a way to more directly connect with our consumers. Uh, you know, the app was a huge part of that. We've seen it as a way to build efficiencies and scale our, scale a very complex sourcing and scratch cooking model. So as an example, we make all our food from scratch in our restaurants. You know, we're, we're prep, washing, chopping, prepping, cooking, all this food. And at scale, 225 locations, over 7,000 employees, that can be very hard to maintain consistency. What most restaurants do is they stop making things in the restaurant and they push the complexity to like a commissary. And it kind of comes in a bag and you pour it out. So you do less in the restaurant. For us, we're like, that's our core value proposition, that freshness. So what we did is we started, we built tools in the restaurant, you know, things like we have a cold prep tool, we have a hot prep tool. It's essentially like, an app that we built for that runs the kitchen. So when you're working the kitchen, it's kind of like a GPS for the kitchen. So it helps guide you in doing that. We realized that, you know, on, on the consumer side, we realized that the connectivity to the customer was a huge opportunity, not just, you know, for pickup, but for payment. Mm-hmm. It was an opportunity for CRM and communication. Oh, now we can do delivery through it. You know, there's, it, it just started to unlock a bunch of potential. And so we invested heavily in tech as an enabler to what we do. But, you know, I, 
Sweetgreen in is no way, you know, if, if we could just, we didn't have to build any of it and I could just Shopify it, I'd be totally fine with that. The reality is we had to pay a lot of pioneer tax because it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important for everyone to remember what is, what is your core business? And for us, it's always been creating great experiences and serving delicious food to our consumers. Yeah. And just using the technology as an enabler to that. As it started to grow and, and you had more and more locations um, and, uh, you know, seemingly more and more people, right? Um, not only in the restaurants, but in your like headquarters. Uh, what was what was it like in terms of your you know uh, your your ability to lead people and like learning that skill that maybe you hadn't obviously had before? Because you know it's like a thing that we talked about earlier about throwing yourself into it and just learning along the way. Like, was it challenging for you? Was it something that came naturally to you? I think parts of it came naturally, and parts of it I'm still learning yeah. um, and growing. I think. What's good about as you grow a company and scale it is, I don't know if you guys have kids. Um, Not yet. But, uh, you know, sometimes I see my friends that have, like, teenage kids. And I'm like, whoa, that looks really, like, really hard. Like, some really challenging, like, questions as a parent. Yeah. What's good is you start in diapers. Mm-hmm. And you kind of grow with the kid. Yeah. And you start with shit and then it gets... Harder. It gets harder, you know, like when you start, it's just like, keep it, keep them alive. And then, you know, my son is three and a half. He started asking about heaven and like death recently. It's like, okay, it's starting to get more complicated. Real deep there, you buddy. know, it's getting really, you know, it's getting a little Actually bit. You got romaine and like, you know, other types of lettuce, <laughs> but not heaven. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, he asked me the other day, he's like, he's like, yeah, we read a book about believing you can do anything. Great book called Dream Big. And he's like. I'm like, you know, you can be- anything you want, you- anything you believe you can do. He goes, oh, I believe I can fly. Okay. I'm like, well, <laughs> yes, but like maybe on an airplane or like I just don't want him to like jump off something. Yeah. And he goes, no, daddy. He goes, when I get old, I will become an angel and I can fly. He goes, everyone will fly one day. I'm like, oh, my God. I don't know how to answer this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was a statement he made, not a question. So he just, he's telling me it's a fact. <laughs> but all to say, I think, you know, like kids, uh, as, you, as you scale an organization, it, it grows you. But you have to really be, I think the key for me is being very reflective across each stage of the journey and thinking about how to level up and how that job changes. Mm-hmm. You know, when we started, our job was actually running the restaurant. Like I was the cashier. I was making the food. I was in the restaurant. I was going to ask, how did you, Nate and Nick, split your time? You know, having three co-founders, we've seen so many examples where it hasn't worked out because it hasn't been clear, like, who's doing what. So, like, did you guys have, like, ownership over a part of the business early on? Or it sounds like you guys were just, like, you know, whatever's needed to be done. Like you do that. I'll do this. Like for a while, it was just whatever needed to be done. And then slowly we kind of developed our kind of our core lanes, which still exist today. You know, Nick was always kind of all things food, a lot of things around experience and develop, you know, the, 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 what the store experience looks and feels like the supply chain, the food, Mm -hmm. Nate was always about kind of the brand, the marketing, and the narrative. Um, and I was always running kind of like a lot more of like the business side and the mm-hmm. operations and the HR and the finance and kind of the technology. So we always kind of had those loosely defined. But for a very long time, uh, we were co-CEOs. And it wasn't until I think 2017 that we actually made those titles official. 
Yeah. But as I've grown through, you know, through this, it's some of it just happens naturally, the your leadership growth. A lot of it has to be intentional. And I think it's amazing today, like how much you can learn from podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I learn a ton from it. I have a lot of other friends that, that I, you know, that are CEOs or entrepreneurs that we share notes and we talk on. I read a lot of books around it. I have an exec, you know, I have a coach that I've worked with. And I think from, again, back to this idea of knowing what we don't know, we, when we started, we knew so little and knew we knew so little that the invest, the getting investors process, what was good about it is it forced us to find advisors. Yeah. You know, that old saying of like, if you want advice, ask for money, if you want money, ask for advice and kind of like, mm-hmm. so we really went and we were very lucky. I got to say, there's so many people early on that were kind of the legends uh, that we looked up to in food or in, in different industries, whether it be, you know, and it, Gary Hirschberg, who started Stonyfield, or very early on took us under his wing, or Walter Robb, one of the CEOs of Whole Foods. Like some of these guys, when we were like super, super young, kind of came, came and put us under their wing and taught them. And so I've really taken to the power of mentorship. And I do try to pay that forward as well, because I think it's such a powerful thing to have someone else. Um, someone else who's been there before just kind of guiding you throughout. Yeah. I think it was a couple years ago, right? When um, Sweet Queen went public. Mm-hmm. What was the thinking behind that? Like what was, obviously it was a great time, uh, you know, in the markets too. Um, but uh, yeah, what was the thing behind going public and how has it been since being a you know, public company CEO? So the thinking was we want to build a once in a generation global iconic brand. And in order to do it, we need a lot of capital um, to fund store growth, to fund a number of our investments. And we saw that going public was the best way to do that. You know, we, I see an IPO as the start of another chapter and really not as an exit. Um, and so we saw it as a really what it is, is a financing. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not really you're not selling, yeah. you're putting infusing cash into the balance sheet. And the market was at a good time. The company was in a place where. We thought it was it, it was a good time to in, get have that cash infusion. It was the most capital efficient way to to load up our balance sheet to fund us so we can be self sustaining um, as we as we look forward. Um, I think the overall it's been a great experience. I think it's brought a lot of accountability. Um, I think what's challenging about public markets is they are you report quarterly, even though you're building something for twenty or thirty right. years. I think the what I've really tried to do with my team and even in terms of how I speak to the markets is let them know that we are building something for the long term. And I think the the right balance is short-term accountability, but still long-term focus. Mm-hmm. And what I tell my team all the time is like, I never want you to make a decision that hurts us in the long term that maybe helps us this quarter. Mm-hmm. Like I want us to really like that, like kind of like, you know, Bezos mentality, that day one mentality of really continuing to make decisions for the long term. And I liked, you know, I've always prided myself on large, still the largest shareholder of the company. I like to treat it as if it's still like a family, like yeah. a owner operated business. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important. And, and speaking of the long term, like what is the long term vision? You know, you guys are continuing to open up new locations. You've mentioned uh, that franchising was never something you're interested in. Um, what do you envision kind of the next, let's say, 10 years looking like? Yeah, so as we think about our, our growth, I think about it on a few vectors. One is scale. Um, our mission is to build healthier communities by connect people to real food. And I think the impact we can make really 
the impact we can make at scale is really can be transformative if we do it at scale. We think about the impact on the supply chain, on you know, on the environment, on the on the well-being of our team members and their growth and development, and of course on serving healthy food and having access to healthy food for our customers. That is that is a big mission that I think at scale can have a huge, huge impact on the world. Um, so one is scaling our footprint. Uh, you know, create more, open as you know many restaurants as we can. Um, you know. Thousand event one day thousands of restaurants around the country and eventually around the world to have more places to 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 be able to eat sweet green. Within that scale, I think there's a lot of evolution around what the concept, what the actual experience will be. Um, one is, you know, sweet green started off as a salad restaurant. Today we're we're not really a salad restaurant anymore. Salads is actually not is is a, not a huge part. You know, it's a it's a large part of our menu. But warm bowls are bigger, and now plates are becoming a huge part of our menu. So as we as we lean into a broader menu that is focused on the same ideals around how we source the food, how we prepare the food that is delicious and nutritious, that should stay the same. But the form factor in which it shows up in a plate, you know, like a, you know whether it be you know a plate or different kinds of food that can meet a broader array of customers and occasions is something that we're very, very focused on. And you've seen a lot of that evolution. It's going to continue Mm -hmm. in a really major way. The third um, vector is, I think, the how of like, how do you get the food now? So it's like where we are, what we serve, and then like how you get it. And I think that's going to evolve a lot. You know, this past 10 years has been defined by a digital transformation. Today, 60% of our business is digital. So 60% of people are ordering are actually not ordering food directly in our restaurants. It's yeah. kind of crazy to think. Yeah. If you think back in 2009 when we started this, yeah. I always actually remember Steve Case once at a board meeting, he's like, because it was like 5% of sales digital. He's like, what would you do? He's like, how would you design your restaurants and your company if one day 50% of your business was digital? And I actually thought like it was never going to get to 50, 60 today. Um, but now thinking about like, how do we reach customers? Um, digital, I think, will continue to be a huge part of it, but how we use our technology to connect with consumers and how that elevates experience, I think, will change a lot. Specifically around AI, I think personalization is going to be a really big thing for us. Um, we have the ability, given the menu ver- ingredient variety we have, and as we can learn more about you, the menu should go from a sweet green menu to your sweet green menu. So if we know more about you as we get to learn more about you through what you buy or what you tell us, we can start to curate a menu that is really tailored to your taste, nutrition, lifestyle, et cetera. But using the same ingredients that you have. Yep. But we can make billions of things. That's right. the thing about like a menu today is kind of archaic. Endless. Yeah, yeah. Like the times, you know, the, the number of types of combinations that we can make, we only show 12 or 15, because that's all we can fit on a menu. Mm-hmm. We don't want to overload you. Right. But it's imagine like your social media feed where it's like made for you. Your menu should start to be made for you. So that's one, uh, one kind of way that we will start to deliver the actual experience in a different way. Another is actually the, the how we make the food. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been, very, uh, we've been heavily invested in an automation initiative. About two years ago, we acquired a company called Spice, and we've now opened two automated restaurants. The idea around automation for us is 
we looked at the, the restaurant experience and what is the, the, the magic of sweet green is how we make the food, the actual culinary, like the freshness, we cook it in from scratch, it's all fresh. And it's the hospitality component, that, that connecting. Then there's this middle component, especially for like the digital orders, where food is just assembled, right? It's almost mm-hmm. a little bit of like a manufacturing, like make just put the food in the bowls. And some of that's on the front lines can be great, but, but it can, it can, it's a very tough, it can be a very hard job. And it can also be, it leads to a lot of errors. Our biggest like detractors from an experience or people sometimes get their order wrong. Maybe it's not on time. Maybe we could serve more customers faster. And so we think that automation can be a huge solve for this. That can make the team member jobs better. Instead of having to do that piece, they can focus on the hospitality. They can focus on the cooking and the culinary aspect. And that automation can help on the middle. It can help us serve customers faster, more consistently. And we believe over time can actually help us from a price perspective in our mission to kind of democratize in a further way. So two restaurants have been opened with the what we call the infinite kitchen technology today. Um, we'll open another 10 or so between new and retrofits this year. And over time, we see much more of our both new and uh, existing restaurants having an automation component that we think will just elevate that experience. John, earlier on in the podcast, you mentioned how, you know, only a few restaurants per generation like really break out and are these big brand names you know whether it's like you know again the mcdonald's is the in and outs the all the other examples that you gave earlier on why is that and what does it take to be one of those restaurants you know we think about that a lot i, I think that it, it requires it, it it takes a lot of things i think one it it comes it starts with a really great product um you need a product that people love and love widely so you look at a company like Chipotle's for, you know, mm-hmm. 3,500 restaurants, Starbucks, I think is at like 37,000. Yeah. So I think you need something that, that has wide appeal and has high frequency. So something that people can eat often. That's where Starbucks is great. Chipotle is pretty good. And that's something that we do really well. It's something that you can eat very right. often. Um, the second, I think, I think timing matters of when you do it. And I think we were very lucky in which, in the time in which we started um, I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, there's a financial piece of unit economics, of having unit economics that can fuel your growth. So, like, how do the actual stores do? And then there's this part about restaurants that is just, un, oh, like, not valued. Is It's really an execution business. It's a people business. I like to say our most important ingredient is people. Mm-hmm. And I can have two restaurants that are like in equally great locations and one has a great head coach, which is our manager, and one the not as good one. And you, the results are radically different. Right. So we have the great restaurant companies really figure out how to scale culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the key to the ones that win because it, unlike software where it's like, all right, you got it. And you just got, or like, even like, CPG or like you're selling a good like if you have something that you know you have a shoe that people love it's like okay just sell more of it and the product is is pretty much you you make it in a factory somewhere and you sell more of it right restaurants are it's still a hospitality business one bad experience is the one that sticks in your mind correct and so the companies that have done great you see this is why we are all so focused on people and culture is the way to win is scaling culture and doing and for us i think it's how we do it you know around these core values and leadership principles that makes us you know we serve you know 225 you know 
restaurants across the country, such different you know places, and to serve a consistent experience every time. And that was my next question, and you you have you had a better segue than I would have had, but. You know, there are a lot of issues today with labor and lack of labor and rising labor costs and all the negative things around labor. Um, And then you have automation that's thrown at it. Um, How are you guys dealing with that challenge of the lack of labor, but also the right people, right? Like, you know, to your point about culture, it's not just the quantity, it's the quality of the people. So how, how do you guys at Sweetgreen work around that challenge? Yeah, we we spend probably equal or more time thinking about how we, you know, our team members and how we bring, find the right people, grow the right people and, you know, train them as we do about acquiring customers because mm-hmm. it's the enablement is, is really a hard part of the business. So there's a lot of things we do from how we select talent. We have a very specific process around, you know, where we look, what we look for and what we can, what are things we can teach you and what are things we can't. We can teach you how to run a restaurant. We can teach you how to work in it. But there's certain things around hospitality yes. that we just, you know, and just that. that you have it or you don't. Is. You have it or you don't. And by the way, we're not perfect at it, but I think we're pretty good at trying to find those right, those right people. Um, so that's one piece of it. There's a lot around what we offer and the benefits that we offer, the pay that we offer. We offer a competitive wage. We introduced tipping last year, which is adding a lot um, to everybody's bottom line for our team members. We offer flexible schedules. We offer a great benefits package. Um, but I think the two things that we offer that are really unique um, versus the competition are the ability to grow. Really, like there's grow, a path for there's, you. You know, we're a growing company. You know, we're growing rapidly and opening a lot of new stores. And like right now, we we had we had a bunch of our you know our ops team here today as an example. And we had you know one of our guys who's a, who's a like an RGM runs a region, so he runs sixty stores across the Midwest. And he started here as an assistant coach. And that's really powerful that you can join here as an assistant coach, essentially an hourly position, and now be making very good money running a whole region, effectively a CEO of a region. And we have many, many stories like that because of our growth trajectory and our focus on internal development. Hmm. We really aim to hire and to grow to for most of our leadership positions from the head coach through our air leaders, et cetera, to be from the inside. Mm-hmm. And it's a win-win-win. It's, it's, it's great for them and it's great for the culture, but it's also, they end up being better employees. Right. Um, the other thing that I think uh, is, again, the, like the X factor for us specifically is the mission. You know, and I think people today are really looking for some purpose in their life. And I think coming to a company that they believe in, they believe in the values and they believe is doing good in the world, I think is the other thing. But all to say, just like you have to think about your competitive advantage mm-hmm. and your differentiators for your customers, we have to think about that just as much for our for yeah. our employee base. Do people really care? I mean, and I'm asking this more as a devil's advocate, but sorry. But do people really care about the mission? Like if it comes down to mission versus pay me more, like do they care? So I think you, the pay is like, you got to compete. You got yeah, to compete on pay, right, right? So I don't know if like if you're gonna pay me twenty percent less and yeah. the, for the, the mission's mission. unbelievable. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know yeah. if that's gonna right. if, if that's if that's gonna fly for a lot of people. Right. But if the pay is the same, and one company you believe in, one company you don't, well, you're gonna go to that one company. For sure. Believe in. So that's that's why I said it's the X factor. You still right. got to compete on all the other things. Yeah, as well. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, John, this has been uh, a pleasure to have you on the show and. Learn about where you came from and your story and, and everything you're building. It, it sounds like there's a lot of exciting things, you know, on the horizon. And 
yeah, we're excited to see what happens next with you and Sweet Green and the future. Thank you guys. Great chatting with you. Yeah. Thanks, John.